from runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 481, Hyper-V in Server 2016 with guest Aiden Finn. Recorded Thursday, June 16th, 2016. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brendan, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio. This is Richard Campbell, and we're back again, still recording from my upstairs office because the downstairs one's still being built. And I have a regular back on the show. It's Aiden Finn, the technical sales lead at an Irish technology distributor called Micro Warehouse, where he works with Microsoft Server and Cloud Technologies. He is a Microsoft MVP in Cloud and Data Center Management and Hyper-V Expertise, tweets at at Joe underscore Elway, and blogs at AidenFinn.com and Petri.com. Welcome, sir. Hey, Richard. How are you doing? I'm good, man. And I'm excited to talk to you a little bit about Hyper-V. I've been doing a whole series of shows on Windows Server 2016. And just a couple weeks back, show 475, when I talked to uh, Ned Pyle, who's hilarious. Yeah, Ned's a good guy. He solicited a comment. This is from Sean Gorman, who said, This is really good, Richard. There are so many new cool things to learn about in Server 2016 by the look of it. I've been listening to your podcast for years now, and there's always something cool to learn in depth. Thanks heaps for such a long running awesome podcast. That's cool. Yeah, thank you, Sean. That's very kind of you. And uh, yeah, there's a lot to know in Server 2016. We're going to keep doing shows on it. That's This is one of those as well. Uh, thank you so much for your kind comment. Glad you listened to the show. It's hard to realize sometimes we've been doing this for nine years now, but I now have Run As Radio mugs. So I'm going to send you one. I'll get your address from you and you'll get a Run As Radio mug. And if you'd like a Run As Radio mug, write a comment on the website at runasradio.com. And you don't have to worry about a mug, Aiden. I'm sending one to you as well. All of my guests get mugs. That sounds cool. I'll add it to the collection. Have you seen the fancy new website where I have all the different, we call it Metro Retro. So I made mugs in all the Metro colors. So I'll actually send you a mug the color of your show. Uh, I got to do something, you know, this, I've been having too much fun with this. We've got to uh, sort of play with uh, the possibilities here. So yes, lots of different mugs. <laughs> what color will I be? <laughs> I don't, it's a, it's a modulus 11. So it's hard to know. <laughs> All right, dude. Hyper-V in 2016. What? I mean, how many shows have I done in 2016 already? And we're still going. It's even on the .NET Rock side of this conversation. We're like, this is a dev edition of 2016, too. This is going to have a lot of impact on the way developers build things. Oh, totally. Totally. I'm wrestling with, you know, because 2016 is all about containers. So is Hyper-V still relevant? Yeah. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just giving you a meatball, Aiden. Don't get angry with me. <laughs> A Hyper-V makes uh, containers secure, so... Yeah, well... Containers have a lot to thank. And logically, the hosting environment of a set of containers will be some kind of Hyper-V host, too. Yeah, so realistically, what you're looking at with containers is Windows Server containers running in virtual machines, and then Hyper-V containers running in virtual machines. So that's a Hyper-V partition running inside a Hyper-V partition. Okay, this is very Inception-y. And one thing Inception taught me is when you run VMs in VMs, they go slowly. Ah, but not with Hyper-V. What? So with Hyper-V, yeah, there is a little bit of a penalty. But in my experience, it's a very little penalty. So what we're talking about here, in case people don't know, is the holy grail of virtualization if you're a nerd, which is you want to run Hyper-V 
inside of Hyper-V. And there's nothing stopping you with Hyper-V. <laughs> Doing Hyper-V inside of 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 Hyper-V. Except that it, it should get slower and slower and slower. I mean, there's always an overhead. Yeah, and realistically, in the real world, what you're going to do is you want to build a training lab for yourself. Right. You want to build a demo lab. You want to teach a class or something. What you're going to have is juicy machine that has, you know, fast disks, some memory, good processor, and you're going to run Hyper-V inside of Hyper-V, and you won't go any further than that. Right. But what that gives you is the ability to say, you know what, I can build a failover cluster. I can build a simulated scale-out file server cluster mm-hmm. on one machine. Right. So I don't need to go out and, you know, give Best Buy or PC World or any of these different companies around the world a ton of money. I don't have to go and buy, you know, four servers from Dell or HPE or whatever. I can literally buy a good laptop with some memory and a fast disk and have that as my entire demo or training lab. And be able to do, I mean, these then are self-contained experiments because the real thing that a virtualization instance creates you is a coherent barrier yep. around everything that's inside it. Mm-hmm. So you've got this lovely little stable environment that's easy to deploy, very fast to deploy. In fact, I was at an event recently in Germany and Ben Armstrong from the Hyper-V group was there and he was presenting and his entire demo lab is built using a script. No kidding. And it is a single laptop with nested virtualization and he's running nano server virtual machines, which are running Hyper-V. And in case people don't know what nano server is, it's Windows not just without a UI, but without any sort of interface. And they've really stripped it down as far as they can go. Yeah. You, most of the time with NanoServer and in the conversations I've had so far, you know, step one is figuring out what are you going to need to add to this to make it useful? Because it is literally a blank canvas. Mm. It's really, it's good for infrastructure, but I think the developers are going to have probably the most fun with uh, NanoServer. Ben had this entire thing and he says, you know, when he is doing an event, he runs a script, he lets the whole thing build. And then when he's done with it, he destroys it all. Nice. Yeah. And it's one laptop. This is getting beyond, you know, cattle <laughs> and into like transient instances of existence. That that entire infrastructure exa- lasted for the 75 minutes that was his session. Exactly. It, it's fantastic. Like last year when I spoke at Ignite in the US, I was accessing a demo lab in Dublin. Nice. And A, I stressed out about building the demo lab and it was a bunch of servers. Yep. Um, traditional rack servers that were running in Dublin. And then when I got to Chicago, you know what conference Wi-Fi and internet connectivity is like. Oh, it could be a disaster. Well, it was a disaster. Was it? Not just for the attendees, but also for the speakers. Right. And I was stressed out. And I was lucky enough, I had two or three people who actually, from the US, who volunteered to give me their MiFi's so I could have internet access that was reliable. And luckily enough, I was one of the few people who had a, a reliable internet connection at the podium. This is the problem with like demoing cloud concepts and things at conferences. Is yeah. That is usually where the internet connection is just crippled. And I mean, good conferences, smart conferences. And I'm not saying that Ignite wasn't, but it was the first time doing it in Chicago. There should be a separate network just for speakers for exactly this reason. I think there was, but it was stressed out as well. I also don't know if it was fully isolated, you know. And I don't envy those guys running that facility. We're a worst case scenario. Scenario, especially Ignite. Not only was it monstrous, but how many smart networking people were in the room, you know, in that building, messing with it, trying to find a way to get better connectivity for themselves. On their five devices. Oh, yes. Yeah. And we come with many more IPs. Are you committed to uh, Ignite in Atlanta? I am not. Not yet? I've, I've submitted my name, but hey, that's all you can do, really. That's all you really can do. I am going to be bringing Run As Radio to 
Ignite. Oh, sweet. Yeah, we haven't nailed down all the details yet, but they've talked to me. I've been chatting with the folks in Red. They want to do a stage space, so I'm talking maybe some panel discussions and recording as many shows as I can lay my hands on. Because that's my life, man. Make shows. (laughs) Hey, you'll have a great audience for that there anyway. I hope so. Yeah, it's going to be... And I do like Atlanta. Atlanta's a great place. I've I've only ever been to the airport. (laughs) I've seen the legendary leaf blower that they talk about that you can't bring onto an airplane. I've seen it. (laughs) You and millions of others the atlanta airport <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah the, the convention center is right downtown it's a, it's an experience no two ways about it yeah good old hot atlanta right in the middle of football season all right so um can i presume and i don't know if you've tested this actually that i can take my existing hyper v instances and just port them to 2016 and they're just going to work yeah and they will run down level um so for the first time we're actually seeing virtual machine versions in 2016 oh okay um so every virtual machine has had a version when you brought it forward it hasn't been supported to bring it back because it automatically upgraded its version it upgrades and that's it yeah. and now you're you're running on the new instance i've had that experience yeah so in 2016 we will be able to bring it forward our virtual machine and increase the version and that kind of ties in very nicely with one of the cool things that the failover clustering group did which was the ability to do an upgrade of a cluster. Hmm. So we can do what something calling rolling upgrade. Now, can I choose not to upgrade so I could actually leave my 2012 Hyper-V instances running on a 2016 machine? If you want down-level features, which would make no sense. <laughs> but the big thing here is it's not automatic. You can migrate yep. and then upgrade. Yeah. Okay. So cool thing we have now is cluster rolling upgrade. So Microsoft found out over the last few years that despite everything they tried to do to make upgrade of Hyper-V as simple as possible, bigger customers were sticking with existing old installations. Yeah. And Microsoft is aware that there is an awful lot of 2008 or 2 Hyper-V out there. And you know why? It works. It works. And you're afraid you'll break it. Yeah. Uh, it's the migration to get from one cluster version to another was risky and expensive, potentially. Right. Because there was no inbuilt upgrade. Right. You had to build in a whole other race. Yeah, you had to build a new cluster, and that possibly meant draining out hosts from an old cluster and putting them yep. to create a new cluster, which left you at risk of not having enough availability and stuff like that, or buying new hardware, which is an expensive operation. So people just said, yeah, we're not doing anything. Well, why would you touch a working cluster rig until it's expiring, until it's five years, it's coming out of warranty, and it's like, now it's a liability. Before that, I mean, why would you touch it? Well, hopefully it's to take advantage of functionality that's there. So, for example, if I'm on 2008 or 2, I can't touch Hyper-V Replica. Right. So I don't have an ability to do disaster recovery. I don't have access to the, the stability and availability features that have been introduced in failover clustering over the last couple of versions. I don't have access to some of the cool things that I can do with Hyper-V in terms of PowerShell management, the improved uh, backup mechanisms, the ability to start revealing NVIDIA chipsets or any other PCI, well, not just any other, but some PCI Express chipsets directly for virtual machine right. uh, with discrete device assignments, which we get in 2016. These are big deals. Like, yeah. Not just having the, the flat, you know, virtualized video driver now that you can actually own hardware. That's that's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So that, you know, it's not just even for, you know, graphics reasons. It's also for HPC reasons. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the ability to say, you know, I've got this NVIDIA chipset that's in my physical host. I can reveal that right down to the hardware to my virtual machines. Nice. Those virtual machines can take native access of that. The same way as we were able to do SRIOV in Windows Server 2012 and 2012 uh, for NICs. Yeah, right. NICs and LUNs. And, you know, we've had this hardware exposure for a while. It's just that now this is not about playing games. I worked with a group of astronomers that are using the CUDA set, which is part of NVIDIA. But they had all this stuff was bare metal. Now, they didn't 
in mind because they're all low-level guys who want to be cycle for cycle. Mm -hmm. But if you actually wanted to scale this thing substantially or be able to license it or anything, you need virtualization. Yep, you do. You do. And, you know, Microsoft want to make it easy for people to get access to this stuff. So in 2016, we have the ability to do a cluster rolling upgrade from a 2012 or 2 cluster. That's the catch. It has to be from 2012 or 2. Okay. And what we're able to do is drain a host of virtual machines, rebuild it with 2016, and add it back into the cluster. Hmm. So we're evicting it from the cluster and adding it back into the same cluster. But now it's upgraded. We have a mixed mode cluster. Oh, no. Yeah. So it's not a dead drop. You're literally taking one host, turning it into 2016, and adding it back into the cluster. Yeah. So this is like doing an Active Directory upgrade. It's very, very similar to doing a schema upgrade in, in Active Directory. Okay. So what we're doing is we're rebuilding each host one at a time, and we're able to live migrate between 2012 or 2 and 2016. Mm -hmm. So it's still a highly available cluster. It's just it's running at 2012 or 2 functional level, even though one or more of the hosts, as you go through the process, are running 2016. And eventually, when all of them are running 2016, you run one PowerShell commandlet to upgrade the cluster's functional level to 2016. Right. So they're very much like Active Directory. Yeah, very, very similar concept. It's something that a lot of techies out there are going to be, oh yeah, I've seen this process before. I know how to do that. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, I'm swapping out domain controllers for cluster nodes. Right. And everything kind of just fits in at that point. Yeah, although, I mean, <laughs> with AD, you can't upgrade to you've got everything done in AD. This is just, you can get one, you know, a cluster of four all the way to 2016 and just upgrade that cluster. So yeah. in some ways, this is not as painful as what we've done in AD. Hunting down every Active Directory server in a large environment, not a small thing to do. No, but at least a cluster is a very highly managed environment, and it's usually just in one or two sites. It's also something that people are very nervous about. Like, they're excited that it's running and they rely on it, but I've never found people that are really comfortable with it. They just It's working. Leave it alone. Yeah, a lot of people are scared of clustering, but what I have to say about this process is it's been working really, really well since the first technical preview of 2016. 16. That's a year and a half ago. Interesting. Yeah, I know. Okay. And we're, what are we at right now? TP5? Yeah, TP5 is out. We're on our way to RTM in probably the end of September at Ignite. Mm -hmm. I would, yeah, I would hope they would release it at Ignite. It sort of makes sense. Yeah, I think we can all take it for granted that that's going to happen. I'd be very, very surprised if it didn't happen. Absolutely. And speaking of conferences, time for me to pay the bills because this episode of Run As Radio is brought to you by IT Edge Intersection Conference, part of the Dev Intersection Group of Conferences. IT Edge brings together some of the best speakers in the world on Windows, SharePoint, SQL server and more, including Scott Guthrie, Brad Anderson, Mark Manassi, Jeffrey Snover, Kimberly Tripp, and Bill Baer. The next conference is in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand, October 25 to 28. Register today at itintersection.com and include the code RUNASRADIO for a discount. Okay, we get this thing in September. We're going to be able to add it into our world fairly painlessly. And do you think this is one of those de facto versions? You're going to want to get everything to 2016? Definitely going to want those hosts running 2016 and some of the virtual machines as well because of some of the functionality we'll get in 2016 guests like discrete device assignments. The other, I mean, the other element of this when we're going to build new hosts is should we build them all with nano server? Oh, that's uh, uh, an ecumenical question. Um, <laughs> well, you're an ecumenical kind of guy, dude. This is a perfect conversation for you. If you had a PowerShell MVP on here, they would say absolutely. They all worship Jeffrey Snover. He would say absolutely. <laughs> Me, I would say if you were a very large environment, yes. I mean, don't you want your Hyper-V host to be as light and thin as possible and also to be, like, clean? The one thing I can say about nanoservers is no chance you'd be running anything else in that host except Hyper-V. Well, I'll tell you what. Any hosts I run, if there's anything on there that I didn't put on there, someone dies. Right. And all of my hosts, despite what Microsoft has been saying since 2008 about running core, all of my hosts run full GUI. Right. All of my customers who are Microsoft system integrators 
install full GUI. Right. And the reason is the lessons of the world have told us that when something goes wrong, you need to be able to log on to that machine and fix it. We still aren't in a place where we can count on remote management. No. And because the thing that goes wrong is normally the network card. Right. And the diagnostic tools around that are, are you need to be on the machine to do that. Correct. Um, we've seen that in the 2012 or two generation about half the span of that life was affected by firmware and BIOS issues on Emulex NICs Ugh. in Blade servers. Right. So just about every Blade server not made by Dell was affected by that issue. No kidding. And you, if you could get physical access to the machine, you could fix it. And if you couldn't, you were hooked. Yeah, pretty much. It's unfortunate that there is such a reliance on third-party stuff. Right. But it's just the nature of the beast. Sure. So I don't live in a world that's big enough to be able to say when a server dies, you shoot it in the head. Right. My servers are cattle, but as a friend of mine, Didier Van Hoy, says, they're sacred cows. <laughs> I love it. You know, the only place I've been happy running core is for Active Directory. I even don't do that because I found myself every now and then having the trouble to shoot domain controllers from domain controllers. Right. So I would love to be in that world where I could say, you know what, I'm going to run nano. I'm going to run core. And, you know, I have tried. I really do try every time they talk about this. I give it a go. And I find myself in a situation where, you know what, in the real world, I can't. Yeah. Like my current TP5 lab for Hyper-V, it's nested virtualization. Right. My lab is literally running on one machine, even though I've got seven or eight machines available to me. It's all running on one machine. But none of them are nano. All the virtual machines are nano. Okay. The host isn't. The host is not nano. Yeah, because for demo reasons, um, it's not very useful, to be honest. Yeah. Because you need to be able to log into the machine to, like, show stuff. Yeah. But the virtual machines are all nano, and I've set it up, and, you know, I'm good enough at PowerShell that I'm able to be able to do that. I'm able to, you know, do my remote PowerShell, do my cool new feature called PowerShell Direct, where I'm able to reach into a virtual machine from the host, even without network connectivity. Interesting. So I can actually configure the network stack. Well, this gets back to your core argument here of give me my full environment on the host, and then I can get in control every one of those nano instances. And these are not containers, right? These are regular Hyper-V VMs. For guests, nano is very interesting because you're reducing your CPU and your memory load. Um, you're able to do quite a lot more in there. You don't have that hardware dependency, talking about a virtual machine. So Nano is much more interesting, I think, in the guest than on the host. Well, and for application services, and for that mindset where it's like, this machine is intended to do one thing, it's going to run Elasticsearch or it's going to run yeah. a web services host of some kind. The fact that it's very configuration is code, everything is generated on demand, essentially it comes from an executable script. And this is the new way. That's how these machines can really be cattle. But I get your idea that the Hyper-V host may be the exception. Yeah, for me, it is at this point now going to be people who disagree with me and are free to do so and be wrong. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Now, to be honest, if I was in a big enough environment where I could say, you know what, I'm running a thousand hosts and I don't don't care, you know, if, if one host dies... I just move my virtual machines over. There's an op- You're willing to use a DR recovery process and shoot that machine. It's even simpler. It's I just live migrate the virtual machines off that thing. I tell an operator to go down and shoot that thing and rebuild it. Yeah. And they don't even have to touch it to do that because I'm big enough. I've got system center. I can reach out, hit the controller of that machine and, you know, do a rebuild from a central point. Right. So that's not a big deal if you're in a big enough environment. But if you're in the other 97%, no, that's not going to happen because you have between one and three hosts, more than likely. Right. And shooting hosts in the head just is not good for your career. No, it's it's a big chunk of your entire environment. Like, while you're dealing with that, 
if anything else goes wrong, you're going to be crippled. Um, which is why we saw a bit of a climb down from Microsoft when it came to their stance on the GUI right. between t- Technical Preview 1 and Technical Preview 2. Originally, they didn't have a GUI in there in the installation. You had to install Core and then add the GUI by command line. And there was a lot of negative feedback, a lot of negative feedback on that. Yeah. So Microsoft did add the GUI back. And they did so with a vengeance by giving us the store and everything else that we would need on a server. <laughs> so we got the full desktop. Who's pouting now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, you want the GUI, you're getting the GUI. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it was good to get it back anyway, apart from the store, I guess. A lot of good things there. But, you know, there's plenty in this version of Hyper-V. People who are running laptops with modern chipsets, they get their connected standby power support. Right. We see virtual machine boot-up performance increasing with the configuration files switching from XML to binary. Backup should be greatly improved. So we now have a resilient change tracking system built into the kernel of the management OS. So instead of relying on third-party filter drivers from the backup vendors mm-hmm. sitting in the kernel and causing memory bloat or crashing or whatever, Microsoft are now tracking block changes so we can get reliable incremental backups of our virtual machines while they're running. We're probably going to have to wait until some of our third-party vendors that we're committed to in the backup space start utilizing that, too. Yeah. Some of the better names, the born-in-the-virtualization type guys, yeah. will be there on day one. And there's a certain Russian company I can think of who will probably be there on day one. And because that's just their nature. <laughs> I like good scientists, man. They're fun, right? They're all over these things. Yeah, and there's a couple of other smaller companies that, you know, I deal with as well, who are always there on day one or week one. And whereas the legacy guys who were there in the days of tape, they might be there in about two years. Yeah, they're going to struggle. Yeah. To just, because it's a different way to think about the problem. Yeah, they're always slow to keep up with what's going on in the Microsoft world, unfortunately. And there's other cool things in there as well. Ability to hot add and remove memory and virtual NICs. So if you've got a virtual machine with static memory, we can add and remove memory to it without rebooting. Nice. If you need more NICs, we can add them. We don't have hot add and remove for processors yet because that's a hard computer science problem. That is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. That they could add memory, which that's not a simple computer science problem either, but they're having a tough time adding processors. Yeah. Now, the memory thing, they kind of had sorted with dynamic memory. Yeah. They were already used to lying to the VM anyway. Yeah. So now they've always had a mechanism for hot add and remove of memory. And dynamic memory, they tweaked that so they could do it with tiny amounts. Hmm. And, you know, they've tweaked again this. One of the things that I was glad to see, because this was one of the things when I ran big hosting environments I was worried about, was upgrading the integration services in the guest OS. Right. Because that's one of those things. It happens you know, a couple of times a year, and that's a big piece of work. You've got a lot of virtual machines. Say you've got 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 virtual machines, and suddenly Microsoft upgrades the integration services requirements. So they upgrade the host, and they say, well, you've now got to upgrade the integration services in all of your Windows virtual machines. That's a lot of work, especially if you don't actually have access to the guest OS because you're in a hosting environment. Right. And you're isolated from it, which in 2016, we can really isolate the admins from the guest. <laughs> we can hard isolate them from the guest. I mean, hasn't that always been true? Like, No, Hyper-V admin, as long as I've got ways and means of getting in there, oh my. because I can always mount the VHDX file, right. which has been an issue for some people. But now the integration components, they're being updated by Windows Update. So that means if the guest OS is doing Windows Update, it's getting the integration services. It's getting the latest ones. Now, going back to that security thing, so we're trying to keep the admins out. There's two big, significant security features 
that have been added to this version of Hyper-V. The first is we have this guarded fabric concept where we have some form of attestation in uh, the form of a host guardian service which runs in a dedicated mini domain hmm. as uh, so a small Windows domain or a small forest which runs this host guardian service optionally supplemented by a HSM to store certificates securely. And when you deploy that functionality to your hosts... Now, if you use the HSM model, your hosts are going to have to have TPM2 chips and a high level of uh, UEFI. I think it's 2.3.1 or something. Right. Every time you start a VM, the host is going to reach out to that host guardian service and say, hey, am I allowed to power up this virtual machine? Because if I'm not, I won't be able to power it up. So it reaches out and asks the HGS for a certificate to start the virtual machine. And if it's not able to get that certificate, if it's not an approved host, it won't be able to start the virtual machine. Wow. So you can actually bind, a, a secure a given VM to a given environment based on certificates. Yeah, so we can stop operators from stealing virtual machine files. Right. You, you take it wherever you want, but if you don't have the right cert, it's just not even going to start. Correct. Now, we can still mount the VHDX. So to deal with that, right. we now have shielded virtual machines. Now, we have two levels of shielding. One is kind of a semi-shielding, and the other one is complete shielding. So when we're shields up, if we're in Star Trek mode, we can have virtual TPM, and we can encrypt our own virtual machine in a hosted environment. So I'm a tenant. I'm getting a virtual machine off you. Mm-hmm. You're running 2016 Hyper-V. I can get my virtual machine. I can use that TPM2 chip, and I can deploy BitLocker for myself in my virtual machine. Nice. I can boot up my virtual machine. Happy days. But you can't get into it. Take that, FBI. Yeah, it's completely encrypted. Yep. So this is the best way to go. It's like, this is, you know, you can take it anywhere you want. You just enjoy decrypting it. Yeah. It's AES-256. It's going to be fun. Yeah, it's going to take some cycles. Yeah, it's going to need, you know, a few of those servers that are in that uh, desert data center the NSA has. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that's a significant piece of work that Microsoft have done for hosting customers. And I would suspect they've also done it for Azure because Azure is probably Hyper-V's biggest customer. Well, for sure. Yeah, so I'd be surprised if we didn't see some of this functionality start to appear. In fact, some of it has already been in Azure. So we know that DDA is used for the new N-series virtual machines in Azure that have NVIDIA chipsets. Nice. A lot of what we're seeing is coming from Azure, like things like the network controller. So we're able to build up the same sort of network fabric that you get in Azure, but on Windows Server 2016. Yeah, I always presume that anything coming to Windows on-prem came from Azure to some degree. Although I wonder about the processing overhead of running encryption on every VM. You know what? I don't think processor is actually a bottleneck on Azure. No. I th- I'd say it's cores rather than processor because if you look at the model they have where you're getting dedicated cores, I would say the processor on most of the hosts in Azure is probably underutilized, I guess. Yeah. As it is in most virtualization. As it is in most computers. I mean, really. Yeah. In my experience, most of the time, the CPU is sitting around playing poker and, and smoking cigarettes, right? Like, they just don't have a lot to do. You can give them more work. Time to deploy that SETI uh, screensaver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the bigger concern typically is networking, right? Uh, that seems to be our constrained resource. Yeah, networking and disk, whether it's IOPS or capacity. Yeah. If you're doing software-defined storage in the Microsoft world, disk capacity is certainly not an issue. And if you're being clever about your networking, you're putting in RDMA and... You're putting in uh, the affordable SSD that you can do with software-defined storage. IOPS is not a performance right. or an issue either because we can really push data really, really fast in 2016 or in 2012 or two. Uh, to be honest. And so there's a lot there. And that network controller is going to be interesting because we're starting to get these NFVs or network uh, function virtualization. So the concept of saying I have a physical or virtual appliance that's doing load balancing or firewalling 
that goes away, as you've seen in Azure. Um, you don't necessarily have to use that virtual appliance anymore. You don't need a physical appliance. Load balancing is just something that the fabric does for you. You just have to say, I want these 10 web servers load balanced, and just voila, they're load balanced. Nice. I mean, you can define your client affinity and all that sort of thing. Distributed firewall, the ability to do policy management for north-south and east-west networks from a central point that isn't virtual machine manager. That's a first. The network controller is that central point of management, not VMM. That's really interesting. It does talk to an evolved way to manage VMs. And all this is 2016. All of it is 2016 and very Azure, just like the Azure stack. Yeah. TP5, I mean, it sounds like it's well worth taking out for a spin. This is pretty close to what we're going to get in the RTM. Yeah. um, They're at bug fixing stage at this point. Uh, We're not going to stuff. Do you think there'll be a release candidate before RTM? I wouldn't think so. Yeah, I think this is probably it, huh? Yeah, I, I'd say that at this point, they're bug fixing and verifying internally or with TAP customers that bugs are being fixed. Right. Um, I'd say the next release we're going to see is, are they even using the phrase RTM anymore? Yeah, I don't know. GA. We'll call it that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's fair, Aiden, and exciting stuff. It, it's going to be a good year for all of us getting our feet on uh, 2016 and getting uh, digging deep into it. I appreciate you getting there first for us. No problem. It's going to be a fun year if you're in the training business. For sure, yeah. Suddenly the work's going to go through the roof. Mm-hmm. Aiden Finn, thanks so much for coming back on the show. No problem at all. Glad to be here. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio. <laughs>